0: You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Simone. I just want to start by acknowledging that uh, we're on the land of the Bunurong Murugiri people, Kulin Nation. Uh, respects to elders past, present, emerging, and First Nations. People that are in the audience, sovereignty has never been ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Um, Great to be here, to to be talking to you about what is home, and I guess I'm coming at it from a queer and gender non-conforming context, focusing specifically on the idea, I guess, of village and family and dwelling in queer and gender non-conforming So. Let's get started. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so just a bit about myself. My name is Simona Castricum. I'm from Melbourne University, studying a PhD there, having a great time, of course. It's wonderful. It's great. Um, and I'm really kind of looking at these, I guess what other people might think, I guess, of dichotomies of where queer and trans existence kind of sits within, I guess, dichotomies of risk and safety, semi-permanence, and what's temporary. Uh, And the big question I always ask is what if safety becomes permanent from a queer and trans perspective? Because I think that the common thing about being queer and trans is that um, we're constantly having to try and find this space between hostility and um, acceptance, I think. So I guess these these are the kind of terms that I use, but I always use this thing of the forward slash, and I kind of look at the forward slash as a place within which to exist. A lot of people look at that forward slash as this sort of threshold or this border. I think a lot of queer people are really forced to occupy that space, and that's a very difficult space to occupy, but I like to think of it as a bit of a universe. Um, And it's the way that I try and unfuck the binary rather than try and look at conditions as either one or the other that... um, Yeah, the forward slash might be a a great place to live in. But sometimes it's not. And it's often really decided for us by agencies that we're not really part of. Um, And definitely it has a lot of relationship back to the home, to the village and how we dwell. Um, there's a song by Parklet called The Neighbor's Grass. I'm not, I'm not ever going to own anything that's going to last me. I'm not ever going to own anything, so why give a damn and tell me how does your garden grow? Um, this idea of kind of like ownership, and this idea of sort of permanence, and this idea of I don't know, like holding down a job and all that sort of stuff, you know, certainly from my perspective is kind of quite difficult. So um, I guess sort of privilege, I think, and then home is something that I think about a lot. And um, yeah, this whole whole idea of kind of building, building assets and being able to hold on to things like furniture and all that sort of stuff. I basically, you know, always think about that everything I have in my bedroom or everything I have in one room is pretty much all I have and kind of live quite simply like that. So the idea of, you know, buying white goods is kind of a little bit strange. Um, I'm going to kind of kick off with a bit of a cooked quote by old mate Le Corbusier, which I think is quite funny, Um, from that wonderful book, Towards a New Architecture. Um... Truth to tell, the modern man is bored to tears in his home, so he goes to his club. The modern woman is bored outside her boudoir. She goes to tea parties. The modern man and woman are bored at home. They go to nightclubs. But lesser folk who have no clubs gather together in the evenings under chandeliers and hardly dare to walk through the labyrinth of their furniture, which takes up the whole room and is all their fortune and pride. And um, that just seems so sad, seems so sad. And I feel I sort of read that last night and I thought, well, obviously Corb's never been to kick-ons. Because, like, all the furniture's there. We're having a great time. This was me on Sunday, but I'm, of course, on this side of the camera um, but, you know, like, there's some... Look at this couch. It's fantastic. It's absolutely beautiful, and it's totally secondhand, but, you know, like, we just pulled it out of the garage, but Kikons is kind of like where we create the chosen family. It's where we create community. It's where we celebrate stuff, you know. It's where we come home after the club, and we're not hanging out under the chandelier. We're hanging out in the backyard having a great time. Um, you know, and we probably come from a place like... Well, no, we didn't come from King's Cross that night. We came from King Street. We came from, you know, from Sub Club. I DJ'd at Sub Club that night in a basement. And... um, But I think one of the difficult things that's happening in the queer community is that um, we are having to use our homes more for gathering as well as for living. Because our places for gathering that are really important, which often happen... In the basements of the CBD where we do find homes outside of our homes that we're not allowed to be ourselves um, are kind of disappearing so it's like the house party is actually a really important part of queer culture um, you know and there are some great films like dogs in space or stuff like that that kind of articulate that but you know if we kind of look at this sort of picture of King's Cross, and I guess one of the things I'm really concerned about is gentrification and its its influence on displacement with the queer household and how I guess over the last 20 or 30 years we've been constantly kind of pushed out from St Kilda to Richmond to Fitzroy to Brunswick to Preston to Footscray. And there's not really much permanence in terms of, like, the villages. When I, every time I think of, like, where could I live, I can't really separate that from the village that I feel safe within. Where can I go to the supermarket? Where can I go to my tram stop? Where does that safety that I can kind of get from walking from my home, where does that exist? Um, and it also has a relationship back to whether I can feel safe enough to leave my home. And there are some days where I can't. So home at times, you know, is, has, does have ex, is its, its extension out into the community. Um, but it's also a place where we can feel quite trapped. Um, depending on whether you have found that chosen family and whether you have that capacity to live in a share house, that is something that, that is safe. Um, that's not something that's available to absolutely everybody and there are some people that live alone. So, I think these are just some of the contexts of the queer house or I guess how gender diverse people live within the home that I want you to think about. But they are absolutely connected to the communities and the villages um, that we're sort of adjacent to. So we we look at this slide of King's Cross, there's an article in 2016 by Naya Karl titled, In the Rush to Gentrify Our Cities, Who Really Loses Out? And she writes, Sex and drugs might exist in, the King, in King's Cross. A fact that, let's face it, is hardly an, an anomaly in any of the world's culturally significant centres. So does art, community, hope, kindness, and countless other things. The problem, though, is not that King's Cross, a bit like Brooklyn's Bushwick, or Peckham in South London, both diverse, historically rich neighbourhoods made newly desirable by an influx of white middle-class newcomers, is gentrifying. It's that the language we use to describe this process sells us a narrative of squeaky-clean transformation, as if we can purge the elements of place we've labelled unsavoury with all the casualness of of a juice cleanse without considering the history we might be erasing in the process or giving a thought to who this might hurt. So I pose that the displacement of this has a serious flow-on effect for adjacent queer communities, neighbourhoods that were once safe and affordable for transgender and non-binary residents and share houses become cost prohibitive. And all of a sudden, we've got to find a new place to live. We've got to find new communities. We've got to build those again. And that turnover can take quite some time. So what might look like on the surface from the street is kind of like a bunch of cis hats hanging out under the neon lights of showgirls. What is actually happening in the basement are a whole lot of queer people employed whether they're working in sex work, whether they're working as DJs in clubs, or whether they're working as producers or anything like that. There's a whole lot of queer people that do work in these districts. And their communities and place of home are actually quite close. But once we start to gentrify these places, um, we're really disconnected. And that's really happening in Sydney a hell of a lot at the moment. It's quite a concern with the way that the lockout laws have been working. There's a house in Sydney called the Dirty Habit. Um, There's a development proposal for it at the moment in Newtown. Um, You know, the Dirty Habit's been a house in the, the queer community share house since 1999. A place in which queer people have lived, gathered and created community. It's such an important part of queer history and culture in Newtown a place that represents safety and solidarity in a city that can often be unwelcoming. Now this is taken from from a public post from Magana Holiday. Um, In an area that is quickly being gentrified, it's also a vital piece of architecture and green space that many would loathe to lose. The backyard has hosted many community events over the past 20 years. The annual Dirty Habit Market, live music, a film set, a queer bike workshop, and many years, Camp Betty, an unofficial free rehearsal space and many artists and other safe space, uh, and a safe space to gather. It is unique and we are committed to preserving it as a sanctuary space, one that shelters individuals and fosters community, allowing marginalized bodies to, to not just live there but thrive. Specifically, there are four huge trees in the garden which are a home to a diverse range of native birds and possums, if development was to go ahead, these trees would cut down. But not only that, but Sydney would lose an important part of its queer history. So these are just some of the houses that I think are really valuable to the queer community and the ways in which we live. Another kind of, I guess, you know, uh, talking back to Luca Boursier from... Julius Gavroche from a, a paper called Struggles for, for Struggles for Space Queering Straight Space Thinking Towards a Queer Architecture from 2016. Luca Boursier's Normal and Common Men are not women, working class. Lupin Prolariat, pro, blacks, gays, and bisexuals, nomads and criminals, all of these kinds of people. And there are many more and marginal to the production of the family. And if architecture does not have the power of a sovereign state authority, it nevertheless can and does, with other agencies constitute spaces of inclusion and exclusion, what may be called the political matrices of space. So I guess some of the ways that that isolation kind of plays out, it works out through peer rejection, it works out through bullying, It works out through issues at schools, at uni and TAFE, through discrimination, through lack of family support, and, of course, accommodation issues and homelessness. Now, all of these have great effects on the idea of home and the idea of community and the idea of belonging. All of these are things that can displace us from the communities or the schools that we find safe. So this idea that... um, you know, I can't separate my home from my community and where I feel safe enough to live and walk is, is really important to me. If we look at some of the existing data on LGBTIQA plus homelessness in Australia, 20% of bisexual people have experienced Homelessness. Uh, and 33% of lesbian gay people have experienced homelessness, where 6% of people with an intersex variation responded that they were homeless or living precariously at some point. A survey of 14 to 25-year-old trans and gender-diverse Australians, around about 1,000, Yet, 22% of them had experienced accommodation problems or homelessness. Those who had self-harmed or were over four times more likely to have experienced homelessness. And those who had ever attempted suicide were also over five times more likely to have experienced accommodation issues, including homelessness. So, homelessness is a really huge problem that we can see, but it's also really important that... I guess, thinking about the queer home Um, and how it's connected to things like mental health services, how it's connected to accessibility to mental health services and getting around and things like employment as well. So um, again, it's the idea of how it is connected back to the village. If we look at some of the strategies that trans young people use in order to feel better about themselves, the home is a really huge part of that. A lot of people have identified music and art as something that they take, um, as something that they do as part of their lives. And a lot of people would be doing that at home. There's a heap of houses that do have recording studios or do have art studios, whether they're in their bedrooms or whether they're in the back sheds. Everything's quite makeshift in that sense. Obviously, peers and friends. I mean, that's where chosen family really comes about. Um, You know, a lot of us have been displaced from our biological families, and so, yeah, the party and the house party and, you know, the way that we share food around the table and um, that is one way that we do come about finding our chosen families in that sense. And, of course, activism is a really big part of what we're doing as well. Um, And a lot of that is based from our homes as part of our workplace from there. Pets, of course, cats and dogs and other kind of pets become our kids as well. So this is my home, and it's absolutely where my music is. It's where my activism is. You know, it's where my posters is. It's where all my social media pretty much happens from, but it's where everything is. And it's, like I said earlier on, what I was saying was that everything's within my bedroom and I don't really kind of have much more than what's in this room Um, because it's easy enough for me to move it because I sort of live on the idea that I don't really know how long I'm going to be able to spend in it. I have been quite lucky. I've lived in the one space for six years and I think that housing security is something that I'm very privileged to have but I don't know. You speak to people, you speak to queer people in Berlin or in Bushwick all around these major cities around the world, and they'll tell you that they've probably got six months in the one place all around the world. So for me to have six years in one spot, I'm pretty lucky. But the reason why I have six years and have had to do that is because I haven't had access to a share house. I haven't been able to live in a share house. But I'm lucky enough to have a child. So I guess my family is a bit completely different. You know, I have to provide for my 11-year-old kid, which means... Um, I've got to have an extra bedroom for him, so I've got to make it work in terms of having a space that's for me, for my child, and when he decides to bring his cat, you know, which is great because I get to hang out with an extra living thing. Um, So, yeah, I guess that's the idea of the queer household that I wanted to share with you. Um, I wanted to finish off with a quote from a homelessness, um, so this is from um, a 2017 LGBTQ homelessness risk resilience and access to services in Victoria report, which states some participants identified stable accommodation as being the only way they could feel safe. One person was very clear that this had to come first before they could attend all their other vulnerabilities. And those vulnerabilities are things like employment, things like citizenship, things like coming out, things like visibility, any of these things. But they say, traditionally in Australia, they still have it, it's ridiculous, where they say, you've got to get your mental health issues sorted, got to get your drug issues sorted, and then you will see about housing. Whereas my mental health issues are such, they are about safety, they are about having somewhere safe, Secure to live. If I've lived in places where I haven't felt safe and secure, my trauma gets triggered off, my anxiety gets out of control and I can't function. I just, I go off the rails. But because I've got stable housing, I've started building healthy relationships with people. I can start working or working towards self-employment because I don't think I can join the workplace thing or going back to school. With my anxiety, it's really not an option. So yeah, it's been, it's what's essential, is the house first and then people, and then they can work on their problems. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Simona. Um, can I ask you, so from what you're describing, the most useful thing for you to have would be, as you said at the end, stable, reliable housing. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of... I'm interested then within the context... Can you describe in the context of Melbourne where... Is there government agencies? Where, Where is that available in Melbourne at the moment Do you that you can apply for that... For the, for the non
1: ah oh, well are well, you mean like I like, could say like a queer housing agency or something like that uh, I mean like there's places like Drummond Street services there's transgender Victoria yeah. um, you know I mean it's it's kind of like there isn't sort of one whole body that that can kind of do that uh-huh. that you know it's if you if you do a Google search for it you'll come up with a list of about yeah. um, you know everything from Zoe Bell gender Center to um, you know, like a range of public services. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's St Kilda Legal Service. Um, there's um, yeah, like a, a range of things. But and then also, there's the Victorian Pride Centre, which is coming online as well. That will hopefully kind of harness all of those mm-hmm. those things together and might provide that as a as a more centralised source. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that. You know, certainly crisis housing for trans people is really difficult. Um, You know, my experiences of of being homeless was, well, I just had to sort of live out of of a car for a little while until I could get back on my feet. So I didn't really know where to go. I didn't know who to call. but even issues like trying to find safe education as well. And it's like, okay, well, what community do I want to move to? You know, it's like, it's really difficult to sort of start those conversations. Like there's, there's rainbow families and all that kind of stuff. But it's this, there's no like hotline you can call straight away. Um, you know, there's queer space. There's, like I said, a whole lot of things that are coming out of Drummond Street Services. But um, yeah, I mean, a lot of it also is sort of focused on, I think, like younger. Younger trans and gender diverse people as well. I think one of the I think the cohort that's really kind of left out is like sort of the middle-aged cohort. I think okay. it sometimes can be really left out. And
0: and the aging cohort, I would have thought as well. Or, uh, or is that a different, slightly different cohort because they've mani- managed to accumulate some some
1: resources? Oh no, I think I think that def- definitely affects the aging cohort cohort as well. Um, but. But, I, I mean, I know as, like a, as a mid-40s trans person who's come out later in life um, and how that affects the, fa- the family, like that experience is like, well, there's just... In terms of resources, in sort of legal resources or housing resources, it's like you're really kind of left to really fend for yourself. And, um, you know, traditionally women's shelters haven't been a very safe place for, for trans women. Um, and I hope that that's changing. I don't really know what's happening on that front. Um, So, yeah.
0: Does the gentrification issue really focus on a combination of the spaces that are in addition to the housing but also mainly from the perspective of rental, housing rental? And what are the options, do you think, in queer communities being able to collectively approach housing so that they can... I guess, own it in a more collective way when individual ownership
1: maybe isn't possible? Oh, I, th- I think for, for a group of people who traditionally... I don't, I'm not sure if ownership is actually an option for a lot of queer people. We're really just at the mercy of land, landowners valuing that, you know, if a place like The Dirty Habit has that history or that, then I you would hope that the landowner is like well, that's a really important part of Newtown. Then they would make a decision to keep that rather than to subdivide it and try and develop that. And and this, you know, like you can write letters into council and see how far you get, but I don't think you're going to get too far. So it's more, there's, there's just not really much we can do. Like who can kind of find the resources to buy that, you know, that's apart from starting up a GoFundMe, you know. But...
0: Even if you secure the housing, if the other, if the other employment opportunities and other things around, which is the reason why that house was so good to begin with, if they go, then that house suddenly becomes isolated from the rest of that network.
1: Yeah, it goes, um, but you know, in order for people to have secure housing, they need secure employment. In order for them to have secure employment, they need to have, you know, secure, um, I guess, access to, to, you know, mental health services, Mm -hmm. to public services. If all of those things are not in place, Mm -hmm. when you do come out or anything like that and you have fallen out of community or you have fallen out of family or you have Mm -hmm. fallen out of a home and you do have to rebuild your life in that case, Mm -hmm. then it's a really long process to get back on your feet. I mean, you can come from having a, you know, having a job and having a car and having having an income mm. and 10 years later, you still not be anywhere near off that. So, you know, it, it's, it's a, it, for some people, it can be a very difficult way back into any kind of ownership. Mm. Um, so I think that just really comes from government investing in, you know, just better services to make that available. I mean, I'm glad in Victoria at least that they're they're taking that seriously, but whether they're taking that seriously in Sydney, you know, for instance, with the lockout laws in Sydney, you know, it hasn't, this idea of kind of like moving violence into other other suburbs, other parts of Sydney, it just makes those communities all the more unsafe as well. Um, So, but in terms of ownership, it's like just, we can only do it if we've got jobs. So we can't build the, the income.
0: Hey, could you join me in thanking Simona? Thank you very much. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.